So we're going to walk into a new series today on the book of Joshua. Joshua was in our Old Testament, and, and we are just praying in this new year that the Lord would lay new convictions on our heart that would draw us towards him, that we would look more and more like him as we season in this life. And we believe that the book of Joshua has great insight for us to do this. And so we're going to stay in this book for the foreseeable future. I don't have a timeline here. We're just going to see what God does. And, and most likely we'll be here until the Easter season. Uh, we have no holidays really for, that are substantial until Easter. So just you're going to be working for a while. So just get used to it. One of the things I thought would be maybe kind for you guys is if I build a policy at church that said that we don't work from Christmas to New Year Day, and you could take it to your employers and say, I have religious exemption uh, for being out of work that you could maybe use as leverage, but I don't think it's going to work. But uh, we're going to be in this for a while, and so just uh, sit back and enjoy going through this. Uh, the, the book of Joshua records the historical account of God's people journeying from the desert where they were wandering for 40 years because of their disobedience to God right after the exodus. From, it records that de- journey from the desert to the land that God promised them and gave to them long ago. That prior, uh, right after the exodus, prior to uh, this text here in Joshua, God gave them that land, but because of their disbelief and their fear and their untrusting nature, they chose not to walk into the promised land as God told them to, and they were cursed for walk for that, and they were sent to wander in the desert for 40 years, which essentially killed off the entire generation that had doubted God's plan and doubted God's promise. And so, For those 40 years, they wander, and then Moses, the great patriarch, he passes away, and there's a guy named Joshua, who's his right-hand man, who who steps in and takes leadership over the nation of Israel, and God then reminds him again of the promise that he made to them long ago, that they need to trust him, because he has a land that he has given to them, his people. And this is what Moses, or not, this is what God speaks to Joshua. We're gonna, this is going to be our text for the day. This is what Joshua is spoken to by the Lord himself. It says this, that after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that your soul, the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards, towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, Just as I am with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And so God makes another appeal to his people. He reminds them of the promise of the land that he had given to them. And he reminds them that it is because of him and him alone that there will not be a person that will be able to stand up against them as long as Joshua lives. He confirms this with a promise that I will never leave you, nor will I never forsake you. And so in the book 
of Joshua, there are strong themes of courage. Have courage, because I am with you, says the Lord. And there are strong themes of reminding us of the promises that God has made for us that enable us to stay the course and trust in God. And look, I think in today's age, we could all use a little bit more courage and to be reminded more often of the promises that God has made to us. This book matters to you and I today. These words in Joshua contain some strong ideas, some reality and understanding for you and I today. What serves to be an overwhelming obstacle for people today and the people of Joshua's time is this aspect of fear. Fear was present in these people because they lacked trust in God, in his word, and in his promise. And the same can be said of us sometimes today. You know, look, in today's world, it does feel like the chips continue to be stacked up against those who profess faith in Christ. I don't know if you feel that. It feels as if the temperature gauge on society is being turned up more and more. We can feel the culture shift irrevocably towards self-determination, towards pursuit of pleasure, towards greed and selfishness. It is easy to look out into our world and feel fear and feel like we're defeated, overwhelmed by the onslaught of secularism and self-centeredness. And if all you did was to look at the world, you would be justified in those stats, those statures, to be fearful and feel defeated. If, if that's all you looked at, it would be understandable and obvious. Because as the pressure increases on the world, as that temperature gauge rises more and more, more of God's word and command will be compromised and challenged and mocked. And there will be many of us who the pressure of all of that will be far too much to handle. And the overwhelming sense of shame that is popularized by this culture as a tactic to move people from truth into tolerant passivity will be what trips up many who profess the name of Christ right now. It will be an obstacle for us it will be far easier in the future to follow the theology of man who is the root of brokenness and sickness in our lives, to follow the theology of that broken person, us, than it will be to hold fast to the ancient decrees and word and promises of God that have remained consistent for the millennia throughout time. And we too will, much like the Israelites did when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, we will let fear cripple us into disobedience and faithlessness if we, like they did, forget that we have a God that has made a promise to us, that has guaranteed a victory, and he will see it through by whatever means he deems right. 
and he will use whatever kind of person that he deems worthy. He will be with us even when the world feels as if it's gone awry. His promises remain true. He gave it to Joshua. He's given it to us that he will never leave us, nor he will never forsake us, and we can take it to the bank, period. Joshua, his story will remind us that in the face of an uncertain future, when trouble looms on the horizon, when all we can see is things to be afraid of, that there is a God who is faithful to be turned to and to be trusted, that that God will lead us through because he always has. There is no need, friend, to fear. We have a God who is above it all and will bring it to his way and submit it all to him. We can relax and trust in him. I think it's important for many of us to start off this new year with reinvigorating our hope and our desire for who God is, our trust in him, in his power, in his glory, in his might, renewing our strength in his love. And so I invite you to pick up your Bibles. If you haven't been in them in a while, if they're a little dusty, I invite you to pick them up and join us in this journey of Joshua. If you don't own a Bible, look, we have Bibles available to you right outside that door. They're a gift from us to you. You can take them at your free will. Whatever you want, how many you want, we'll replace them. Join us in the journey that we would come together under God's text and see what he has to say to us. One of our most beloved values in this church is that we anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. Our desire is that's not just something that we say, but it's a reality of our hearts that we have a desire to come under the word of God and hear it. And so look, my agenda today is this. My agenda today is this, to set the course for the weeks ahead by laying down some context, by painting some uh, background information into the story of Joshua, but also bringing us some caution in, in how we account for the things that we're going to read, particularly how we account for some of the gruesome violence that we see present in the book of Joshua. In your study, how do you deal with that? We want to speak towards that today. And so let's begin to kind of walk down that road. And so understand this, the first mention of this guy named Joshua is found in the book of Exodus. It's found in chapter 17, and Joshua wasn't Joshua at this point. His name at that point was a guy named, was Hosea, not a guy, it was Joshua. Hosea, that was his name, Hosea. He is one of 12 spies that go into this promised land that God had told his people about, this land full of milk and honey, the land of of Canaan. He's one of 12 spies that go into this land to see if it's possible for the people of Israel to overtake this land. And he and Caleb of the 12 people are the only two people that come back and say, look, God's got this. Why are we fretting? But his arguments are to no avail because the other 10 say, no way. They don't trust God. And that is why they wander in the desert for 40 years. And in that disaster, Moses changes Hosea's name. He changes it from Hosea, which means saves, to Joshua, which means God saves. 
Now, there's nowhere in Scripture that we can say, this is why that name was changed. But if we look at some outside resources, some rabbinic texts around that time, we can kind of get an idea that, that Joshua's name was changed because Moses, in that disobedience, wanted to remind his people who was in charge. And every time they said the name Joshua, they knew that God was the one that saved. That it wasn't people or their effort that was going to accomplish anything, but God is the one that gave Joshua his authority, his power, and his might. That, that is why we think Hosea was changed to Joshua. That people would never forget where Joshua's authority came from. And so when did he live? When did this guy Joshua live? That's a great question. Thanks for asking it to me. Joshua lived in this time period between like 1355 BC to 1245 BC. It's approximate. There's some argument on that based upon when you think the Exodus happened, actually. Um, and there's, not a, there's a lot going on in the world, but not a lot of historical things that are happening in the world that you would like, oh, I remember reading about that. There's not a, large, a lot of large kingdoms at this time. There's the kingdom of the Hittites that we're going to talk about in this text. The Egyptians are obviously a big group of people. There's a pharaoh named Ramses that's in charge at this point. Uh, the Bronze Age, if you've ever heard of the Bronze Age in Europe, it's coming to an end in Western Europe. But most people in this day and age are, are still nomadic. They're still kind of travelers by nature. And so we find Joshua in the midst of that. It's always been important to me that we grind and ground uh, Scripture into some historical timeline and narrative. There are people that think that some, somebody just made up these stories, that some genius down the line decided, well, I'm going to deceive a bunch of people writing these spectacular stories. But that's just not the case. Like, the Bible has always proven to be one of the most accurate tools in understanding history that this world has ever known. These things actually happen, and these are actual people. And it's important that we grind this or crown this into some historical context. And so we're always going to do that. That's the world that Joshua lives in. Now, as I stated earlier, and we'll put this on the screen so you can put it in your fill in the blanks, uh, the book of Joshua is an historical account of Israel moving from the desert to the promised land, into the promised land, and then we're going to watch that promised land kind of grow. The land of Canaan is the promised land, the land of milk and honey. It resides today in the same region that you know where Israel resides today. Right? That kingdom, that land that God promised him, stretched from near the Red Sea all the way up to modern-day Turkey. It was on the shores, the very eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And so look, as we prepare and get some background into this, and I encourage you to read this book with me, and I will just, I'm going to put a note in here with this. If you don't have a study Bible I would recommend you getting a study Bible. And here's why I'm going to say that. Read in the Bible, uh, get in the Word, read. However you can, but there are times that you're going to read things and you're going to go, what did that mean? What was he saying? Why did he use that? And it's so helpful to have a commentary underneath it to say, this is why this says this. And this is what he means when he says that. So you can get the full picture of what scripture says. We don't read scripture, never read scripture and say, what does that mean to me? That's a, that's a really bad question. 
there is a manner in which God wrote those things to mean a certain thing. And we should figure out what God meant when he wrote those things. So just my little off the side, get a study Bible. It's going to help you in this study. And so I just want to examine the purpose of reading scripture in general, just to kind of start this year as we get into this book. I want us to understand that the purpose of of scripture is to not be an index that is some sort of self-help tool for you to kind of consult. It's not there for you to look into when I need this or I'm feeling depressed. It can bring some, yes, it can bring some help in those things, but that's not its design. It's not designed to be there for you to, to look at our ancient ancestors and say, look at all the mistakes that those jabronis made. I'm not going to do what they did. Those lessons are helpful, but they're not the point of Scripture. It's not to look at the stories in Scripture and look at the the quote-unquote heroes of Scripture and and to begin to boil down their lives to their principles and their practices and say, oh, how was it that they were successful? How did they live morally? What's their morality? Okay, I'm going to take those building blocks, I'm going to put them in my life, and then I'm going to be successful the way they were. That's, That's not the point of Scripture. If we relegate Scripture into that kind of realm, all we're doing is living our lives and believing that Scripture is there to help me live a better life in this context on this earth. It's to assume that you are writing your own story, that you are the hero in your own narrative, and that this Scripture is here to help you achieve a better life to be more heroic and better on this earth. That's just not, that's just not the purpose of scripture. Laura Story wrote a a book called When God Doesn't Fix It. And she asked that we think about the characters in the Bible differently. She says their stories in the Bible aren't there because the characters are heroes. Their stories are in the Bible because God is the hero of their stories. Uh, Think about all of the great Sunday school stories that you ever heard. Daniel in the lion's den, Noah in the flood, all of those stories. Were, were, Were Daniel and Noah the heroes in those stories? Or was it God? The great I am who swooped in and saved the day. This life that we are living, this story of ours, it's God's story. It's his story. And we just get to be a part of his story. We are not the hero of our stories. God is the hero of our stories. Reading scripture is there for us to better understand who our God is. And in our understanding of who our God is, we gain better understanding of who we are. Most importantly in all of that is understanding our need for him in all of it. And so as we jump into this book of Joshua, know that the aim is to reveal better understanding of who God is, not Joshua or Rahab or anybody who's in this story, but God and God alone. These events were recorded and happened for you to know God better. For you to know God better. 
And in this book, we're going to find some really profound, simple truths about who God is. Joshua's life points us towards an understanding of God as a general, as a defender, and as a king. He's a general, a defender, and a king. That God is somebody that leads his people, but also calls us upwards. A general calls us upwards. Maybe you had people in your life that spoke words into your life that called you upwards. I remember uh, being a football player and just practicing, not making a spot on the varsity, and my head coach looked at me and said, I notice you. Keep going. Keep... He called me upwards. God calls us upwards to be more than what we thought we could believe we could be. Not by looking better, but by trusting him and obeying in God. He's a defender that he says will never leave us. He will always be with his people. But he's also a king that gets to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and he doesn't have to consult you in how he does it. These are the things that we find out about God in Joshua. Joshua reveals these things to us. And so listen, when we read this text, you're going to read about things that quite frankly will give you some trouble. They, can, they give me some trouble. There are times in the story of Joshua where God has Joshua annihilate people without discernment. Women, children, men, it doesn't matter. And when we read those depictions, it can be quite easy for us to doubt the goodness and the character of God based upon the actions that happened. That we would doubt who God is by what we read here. And so I, I want to, to particularly speak towards this aspect of, of the violence that we see present in the Old Testament that we don't see present in the New Testament and why it's there. Because I think it'll bring better comprehension to you as we go through this series. I always want to keep this thought in front of us, this perspective in front of us. Always remember this, and this is not demeaning your worth and your value, but listen, God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. He is not obligated to you and I in the least of anything. Not obligated. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he pleases. Life ends all the time. Today, 50,000 people will die. But understand that God is God. And he gets to rule and govern everything. And everything he does is just and right and good, no matter what we think or what we feel. Understand that, but also understand that we have chosen our own way rather than God's. We choose to pursue self first more than we pursue after God. And that is sin. God can't be around sin. He has to punish it. God would be just to wipe us all out, completely justified to destroy every one of us for our disobedience and our sin. 
but he is long-suffering, our Lord. He is patient. He is good. He is kind. He is loving. We have all experienced those things in our life. We know that there is a purpose behind all the madness, even the violence that we see in this text that causes us to doubt the character of God. And so when we read this book in Joshua, when we read it, know that God has a plan. And it's been his same plan for a long time to bring his people back to himself. After the fall, he is going about to bring salvation back to his people. And he needs to get to Jesus. He's got to get to Jesus to ensure that happens. And so violence and bloodshed happen in the Old Testament for very specific reasons. And we're just going to walk through four kind of general ideas on why we see this kind of violence in our Old Testament. Four different things. God uses Old Testament in the Old Testament. He uses violence in the Old Testament to preserve the messianic bloodline. He's preserving his people because he knows that in a broken and a hostile world, if he doesn't protect his people, they will be overcome by the world. If God doesn't protect his people from their enemies, then the line of Jesus, guess what? It gets cut off. And if they get annihilated, then there's no Jesus. And you and I today are on a pathway straight to hell. And so God uses violence to keep his nation set apart, to preserve that line, to get to Jesus. But he also uses violence to purify his people. There is brokenness and sin all around the world today, back then. And God knows our hearts. He knows you and I. And he knows that it would only be a matter of time for the sin and idolatry and disobedience that wages in the culture around us, for us to begin to migrate towards those things, to drift into those things. And so we see violence in Scripture because God beats them to the punch and says, I'm not going to let my people be perversed. And so I'm going to wipe out their enemies so they themselves aren't led into idolatry, idolatry and debauchery. And so he preserves, he purifies, and God uses violence in the Old Testament to prophesize the judgment of God. Our Old Testament gives us a great picture of the fact that sin and disobedience always has consequences. There is wrath that is given to sin, and God can't withhold it. And it's not because he's vengeful. He's that glorious and perfect and holy that imperfection can't be in his sight. And so he has to destroy it. And so the Old Testament gives us, it prophesizes this judgment, that there is a judgment that has to happen for sin. And God also uses violence in the Old Testament then to show us the pattern of atonement for Christ, right? Shows us the pattern for atonement. There needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be something that gets in the way of our disobedience and our sin because God's wrath is not whole. It cannot be withheld. And so that violence points us towards Christ who would fight for us 
to conquer that sin and that disobedience for us. That we wouldn't receive the judgment of God because of Jesus. That's why we see violence in this nature. It's hard to read at times. But understand that it's there to preserve and purify, to prophesize, and to pattern atonement for Christ. Now, what makes the New Testament different? Obviously, Christ. Jesus fulfills the entire law. On the cross, he says what? It is finished. Those are his final words. And now the means of preserving and purifying and prophesying are left to who? They're left to the Holy Spirit of God because of Christ's sacrifice. His blood has made us worthy to be back in a relationship with God so God can dwell with us. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. And in Christ's sacrifice, everything has changed. It is everything has changed. The word that we have today from the Lord is this about our enemies. Love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. Lay your life down for the world. Don't kill in order to spread my message, but rather lay your life down to spread it. There is no need for violence anymore in the name of the Lord. And to be honest, we've gotten this wrong in our past. We've gotten this very wrong in our past. In the 10th century AD, we, we had this uprising called the Crusades, where Christians went and killed and converted Muslims in their country out of force and intimidation. That, is, that does not please the Lord. That is not his heart. That is a black spot on our history as a people. And so it's always important to remember that when Jesus came, he didn't come here to lead a revolt, an uprising, or a coup. He came here to conquer sin and death. He did not lead us against a political structure. Jesus took the way of the cross, not the way of a crusade. And he calls his disciples to do the very same thing. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This covenant with Jesus is different. He works differently with his people. This is our reality now. The gospel is spread not by causing others to suffer, but by our glad suffering. And that's not easy to hear. Nobody wants to think about suffering. But friends, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm telling you this with confidence and courage. It's going to happen. The pressure cooker keeps getting hotter. It keeps getting tighter. There is going to be cause for fear and anxiousness as our culture continues to drift in certain ways. It will not come through Christ's love and, and sacrifice and, and gospel, will not be made known well through your falling down into the world's tactics, getting muddy like them and, and being hateful and, and 
and condemning and mean, but rather the gospel will be served better through your trust and obedience in your suffering today. That's the truth. And so as we walk through Joshua, I believe that it will bring us hope and courage and reminders of God's promises for an uncertain future that will hopefully carry over in your life and manifest itself out in greater trust in the Lord who has always delivered on his promises every time. That there is no reason to fear that we have a God that's above it all, in charge of all, and all we have to do is not look left or not look right, but to look at him. He is the one that supplies all that we need to walk in a manner that is worthy of him. And today as we close, maybe you're in this room and you have just been dealing with anxiety and fear about the coming culture. Maybe you've been fearing what, what this life, maybe you're scared for kids or your grandkids. Like, how's this? What are we going to do? I just invite you to lay that down today. If you need to come up here and, and be prayed over and just give that to the Lord, surrender to his feet, give it to him. He has not called you to walk in a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of hope and courage. He, you are a conqueror in his name. And so I beg you to give that to him today because you have more than you ever know in him that provides trust and hope in every situation. So we're going to stand together and sing our last song and I'm going to invite my prayer team, our prayer team to come up here and pray for you. But let's worship our king as we close.